0: welcome to episode three. Thank you so much for tuning in to the next part of the conversation with Sonia Powell about Bell Hook's book called The Will to Change. I have a question for folks this week. Who do you know who could use this conversation, the one that we're having right now, the one that you're having in your head about this topic? Who would find it comfort in knowing that white men can be more than what we were raised to be? Who needs the challenge to not only accept that their privilege exists, but also examine those parts of themselves, the parts of themselves that they cut away, in order to be privileged? The price of being a white male is high. Please share this podcast with folks. The personal conversations we engage in are far more important than any recording or book. This podcast, (laughs) if we're... If we're going to tell the truth here, this podcast is really just an excuse to connect with folks around this topic. We left off last time with Sonia, talking about how even though her mom did the corporal punishment, she still got the message, the dad was in charge, the dad was to be feared. The wait till your dad gets home phenomenon. So diving back in, let's do our best Patrick Stewart and Engage.
1: Like just like
0: El did, but it's stunning. That
1: actually, yeah, I don't
0: know. Well, I mean, part of what was horrifying to me about reading this, and and I mean, need to acknowledge the privilege of having gotten to do that work in therapy. Um, yeah. And then looking at my own parenting, like spankings were definitely a thing early on with the kids. Figured out somewhere in there that that was a terrible idea and was, just, yeah, couldn't continue doing that. But I still remember this moment. God, my, uh, our son Eli was probably ten, maybe eleven. And I remember being, I They were upstairs and I was downstairs in the, the house that we were in, and I remember hearing this the arguing escalating, and they'd been arguing, He and his sister had been arguing all day. And I, I remember hearing the smack um, um, and bolting up the stairs, just furious. And I remember grabbing his wrist and I didn't, I didn't hit him, but I was yelling and angry. And I remember putting his wrist on the ground like that was as nonviolent as I could be. And it was still looking yeah. at it, especially through bell hooks, just knowing how horribly dominating that is. And, and then coming up with, well, of course, kids are afraid when you yell, when you get upset, like just this crazy, horrible thing that just exists. And you, I think you're right in pointing out it's amazing the way she manages to like put her finger on so many different little pieces to the entire system that construct this, that yeah, the wait till your dad gets home, the, the microaggressions, the just little all of the little ways that this gets reinforced and the result is we fear men Um, I fear men I've hated men my entire life Um, me too I mean me too I I can't say otherwise I think that's it's only been honestly in the last probably six months um, of and yeah learning to love myself as a man um And doing a lot of this work, but it it's like who wants to love the great white male? I think that's a, part of the reason I use that phrase is because it's it articulates the myth because nobody wants that, nobody wants to be it, nobody wants to love it um it's awful, and there's there's nothing there that is good.
1: you know you know what's funny though is that and I think this is exactly why um especially white women work so hard to uphold patriarchy. And that is, it. it's a symbol of power even to those who think, like, if I can just hook on to that, yes. that great white male, then I have some access to power. Yes. But that has nothing to do with love. Nothing.
0: No. It, it, um. Hooks grounds her entire argument in, in love. And that's, I mean, I think that's probably the hope thing, too. But it, I think you're right. That's... It, the the black feminist critique of feminism you know leading up to and into the 70s of first wave feminism so called or something like that um it is that it it was really about women trying to to gain equal power and that the real problem right. uh, a black feminists put forward is you no know, the whole system of power is what we have to address because it it's just going to yeah. keep perpetuating um yeah uh, so you've mentioned this this story about women wanting that power. I, I have a, another little bit here on that. Um, the, so a couple of years ago, I did an experiment where I wore a skirt for 30 days, and I blogged about it, and I just talked with people about it and just saw mm-hmm. what happened. Uh, There's a lot to that. That's another episode, I think. Um, but the part that was really – that is relevant here – was the number of of women who told me stories of wearing pants for the first time to school hmm. who saw my skirt heard the story and just went oh my god you're doing it you know we, i was the i i was sent home from school i'm thinking of one person in a coach training program that i was in i was sent home from school for wearing pants to school um huh. and i was told that you know we couldn't and it you know change began and happened. And um, so there's this, it's this weird (sighs) There's this weird moment in that, in that movement where, because the ability to dress however they wanted was deeply important to self-expression. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's also this, death of the movement when that is all it's about if all it is is women being able to put on pants then we have failed utterly um mm, yeah and that's part of my assertion with the 30 days in the skirt project is it, we haven't solved this we haven't even really addressed it beyond saying okay women can wear pants um because as a society it's still not okay for a man to wear a skirt um, and my argument wasn't for cross-dressing. I was just saying I, I, I'm wearing one right now. I love skirts. They're they're really comfortable in the summer. <laughs> um, so it it is it was this weird moment of both respecting, you know, the trauma of these these little girls who had worn what they wanted because they wanted to go play in the dirt and they wanted to to do things that pants were more comfortable for doing Um, Mm -hmm. and this connection through, I I think black feminism with the, the notion of intersectionalism and, and and moving beyond that now into um, uh, uh, third world voices and, and all the different acknowledgements back to the seat of the oppressor, all the different acknowledgements of places where we have power or privilege and, and then the, the stain of this system that constantly needs us to fragment ourselves um, is so relevant to this whole thing.
1: Um, Something about uh, um, your experiment with um, wearing skirts reminded me um, of uh, probably around a similar time to us in that clearing liturgy class um, a friend of mine in seminary—I don't know if you knew him, Eric Hansen. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful human. Um, he um, he did his own sort of experiment, but it was—it just sort of happened. He um, had longer hair, you know, it was not down to his um, shoulders, and he always wore little clippies. <laughs> I don't know what else to call them, but yeah. like little clippies. It is on each side because, like, he his hair on his thighs. And, um, it it was adorable. And uh, quite frankly, it was not, it did not signal to other people. I am a patriarchally masculine man. Um, and then he just, because he wanted to, he shaved his head to like, you know, do a different hair thing as is anyone's right. Um, and he, he was so, um, taken aback by how every single person in his life, especially strangers, treated him differently. Oh, wow. Um, and it just really reminds me of, um, so it, it was a time when I was trying to like, whenever I was doing that, uh, look into the eyes of stranger men um, mm-hmm. week, um, I also, I, I remember hearing him talk about how um, he no, it was no longer okay for him to talk to children on, oh. um, on the Bart he, uh, uh, women specifically, but men too, would, um, interact with him totally differently in terms of eye contact and even possibly saying something, um, because suddenly he looked like a big, scary man. Um, and it just, it really like, it, it really just drove home to me, like in a way that you know, bell hooks can say, and I know she does somewhere, I, I don't remember where, um, she says that, you know, boys, they just have so much, many more restrictions about what they're allowed to do, how they're allowed to perform in the world. And the threat of of the, the risk of them altering that um, is much greater for them which I think is absolutely true um, in terms of, well, just in terms of like how deeply uh, dangerous it is to just be a trans woman. Um, For example, Um, they're just, we are so uh, invested in policing maleness um, in these very tight strictures of what's allowed. Um, And it's obviously as a society that we keep reinforcing this notion that like Real men have short hair. Real men wear pants. It's very important that you do these things. But then, when you do those things, we treat you like someone to be afraid of. Yes. It's such a fascinating double bind. Because, like, I mean, I feel like Eric really had to go through mourning, actual grief at the loss of, like, children, especially, but just everyone treating him like a fun possible friend. When, just because he, he yeah. was performing a different type of masculinity, so nobody was like everyone was like, oh, well, that's a weird guy. He yeah. has clippies and his long hair. Uh, he's not a threat to me. Yeah. I mean, I also don't think he's a real man, probably, but he's at least not a threat to me. It's just um, such a weird mindfuck.
0: <laughs> no, the same thing um, happened to me with the skirt project. Suddenly women yeah. were com- commenting on my legs. It was this, I, I think Bell Hooks mentions the notion of, you know, we need to learn to love male being, masculine being, not just the performative. And I think this entire thing that we're talking about here, right, has has to do with performativity.
1: Yeah. Right? It's that out, right.
0: outwardless display that is very much policed and that very therefore much, yeah. also cuts the man off from from self-love because it's, mm-hmm. if we aren't performing, Oh God, like if we aren't performing a you're role, only,
1: yeah.
0: right? Like you're just loving. You're only love
1: if you do it right. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and yet it, yeah. if we do, it's not really love because it's feared. Yeah. Like yeah. Per- performativity is so much of this entire conversation. And I think in the entirety of the book highlights the the problem of performativity as, it's that notion that well I'm gonna gender you when I see you because I see what mm-hmm. you're performing and therefore I you know I call I, I he yeah. or she you know Um mm-hmm. okay, I, I love the I, the the way we started this with kind of checking in on where we're at and and allowing each other to kind of name and bring into the space where we're at. And yet that's a thing that we don't do. And most of us don't do in daily life, especially around which pronouns are we going to use with another human being? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I feel like some in some little, little snippets of society that's changing,
0: Mm -hmm. but,
1: um, but only in those snippets.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there's another little bit on this topic. Can I, throw that out there yeah please okay it um so it's from page 66 and this this little snippet is the whole reason that i wanted to read this book um it's it's very much on topic here um the first act of violence the patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women instead patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic mutilation that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. Feminist movement offered to men and women the information needed to challenge this psychic slaughter, but that challenge never became wide, became a widespread aspect of the struggle for gender equality. Women demanded of men that they give more emotionally, but most men really could not understand what was being asked of them. Yeah. Having cut away the parts of themselves that could feel a wide range of emotional response, they were simply too disconnected. They simply could not give more emotionally or even grasp the problem without first reconnecting, reuniting the severed parts. That's
1: that's a good one. I, I think that... I, for me, how that ties in so deeply with what you were just talking about is the idea that um, that I feel like she then brings it around later in the book is that there is some sort of selfhood that is good in humans, um, yes. and that it's like it's like underneath or behind or or it's it's not it's not in opposition to, but it's it's past gender. Yep. And that that selfhood. Because right? she later she talks about like how how often men uh give their loyalty to manhood instead of selfhood. Yes. But this idea of integrity where you don't have to self-mutilate. Yes. Um your psyche and strip away parts of yourself as an emotional human being, which is literally a human being. Yes. Um that, like, that's the only way back. That's, that's, it, it has to be the only way back, is to, like, actually have wholeness and, like, actual loyalty to
0: the self. That's, so that, well, the chunk that it stuck out to me so much so that I had dog-eared it and I turned right to it just now um, is uh-huh. on 165. She says, responsible men are capable of self-criticism. If more men were doing the work of self-critique, then they would not be wounded, hurt, or chagrined when critiqued by others, especially women with whom they are intimate. Engaging in self-critique empowers responsible males to admit mistakes. When they have wronged others, they are willing to acknowledge wrongdoing and make amends. When others have wronged them, they are able to forgive. The ability to be forgiving is part of letting go of perfectionism and accepting vulnerability. Ties in so much with her her running theme of the notion that men are not satisfied with patriarchal masculinity either, like that.
1: Hell no, and
0: that it like I, I I'm not sure if people can even begin to understand why why men are such a especially white men are such a huge statistic, especially in times of economic downturn uh, around um, suicide, and it it's yeah. it, she names it over and over again um that like yeah. we, if we cannot perform the masculine role of provider if we can't perform the role of uh, of subjugator then we do not have being yeah and that you know the performance equals the being is is just fundamentally like it's it's untenable and it's no wonder. Men have no way to deal with it, especially. Especially, we see it especially in in times of economic downturn. Like that, you have no value oh. of a human as a human if you are not producing. Holy crap! Who wants to live with that?
1: Yeah, and it's. It, I, I mean, just as you say that, it's like so deeply warped and wrapped up in a, a capitalistic structure that. Yes really takes away all of our humanity but it seems like it seems like and i think what she keeps trying to point out is that you know if given the option if your only options are dominator or subjugated because that's the game that we're playing yes men choose to try to be the best dominator they can yep but that that the game itself is
0: is the problem
1: it causes violence to all of us. Yeah. All of us. And it's deeply unsatisfying to all of us. Um, and the game itself is just, it, it, it's really, it's really wrong. And we need to do over. We need a huge do over.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this portion of the conversation with Sonia. Please be sure to tune into the live stream of Where's Your Heart? on Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific for more engaging conversation like this. Uh, Torian and I are actually in the process of pulling the audio from that stream to make a podcast as well. Search Where's Your Heart 2020 on YouTube to get a hold of that, get a hold of the live video channel or even past episodes. And please do stay tuned uh, for when we release the podcast. This week I'm honored to also be on the Frontline Stereo Podcast. The host of that podcast, TL, asked me why I've been holding back in my Monday live stream conversations with Torian, and the question has been haunting me, so I'm really looking forward to that talk. Check out the live stream Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on Facebook. Just look up Frontline Stereo Podcast on Facebook and join in the stream, or check check out the podcast at frontlinestereopodcast.podbean.com. TL had a great discussion last week on his last episode on why colorblindness, when it comes to race, is just such a lie. So it's, it's a great all-around place for folks to engage the conversation around race that is so, so needed right now. Thank you for engaging today, as always, and for living as Maya Angelou said. Do the best you can till you know better. When you know better, do better. Stay tuned for the final part of my conversation with Sonia in episode four. I'll see you on Wednesday.